Analytics Podcast. I am Alan Kavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of MotorsportsAnalytics.com. On this episode, a quick discussion of the All-Star Race as we approach this year's event. A crazy idea that works in other sports and our man David thinks could work in racing, but I'm not quite sure if he's right. And a special guest, the manager of communications for the ARCA Series, Charles Crawl, will join us. You may know him by another name, but we'll get to that later. But first, as always, this is episode 17 of Positive Regression. This is the Daryl Waltrip edition. David, DW, an interesting choice, only because people in our age range, I'm 36, we we primarily know Daryl Waltrip in the 17 car, and, and that's not where most, if any, of his success really came from. But we cannot forget he is one of the best to ever do it on the track. No, and we talked a little about DW uh, back on episode 11, our Junior Johnson edition. Daryl Waldrop's best seasons at the NASCAR Cup Series level came at ages 34 and 35 when he won a combined 24 races across two years on behalf of Junior Johnson's race team. He earned peers of 5.903 and 5.15 uh, and I got to tell you, landing at 5.0 for a full season peer is rare. The last driver to do it was Jeff Gordon, now his Fox Sports booth mate, uh, back in 1998. The Cup Series is more competitive now, but even still, DW, at the height of his powers, Alan, was pretty remarkable. Sure. And as I said, we, we know him of the number 17 car. That was later on in his career. Yeah, and and for the for the 17 car... DW joined up with Hendrick Motorsports in 1987, and it was for his age 40 season. An interesting age considering what we know about a driver's production curve. He joined a burgeoning powerhouse in the winter of his career. I liken that a little to Matt Kenseth joining Joe Gibbs Racing when he was already past his production prime. Uh, but from 1987 to 1990, Daryl Waldrop won nine times for Hendrick, including the 1989 Daytona 500. After that, he formed his own team for the 91 season, bringing along the number 17 and his buddy, crew chief Jeff Hammond. They won five times across the first two years of the team's existence. But after that, the winning stopped. He suffered eight winless seasons before retiring prior to 2001. You know, Alan, for me, first as a fan and now as a student of the sport, it was the 1989 season that sticks out. That Daytona 500 in particular was the first race I have a firm recollection of watching. And as a kid, my family taped races on VHS for me to watch all the time. I wore that VHS tape out. I am intimately familiar with that race uh, and the season. He was 42 that year. He won six times, uh, but was 200 points shy of the title hunt, uh, probably his last realistic shot of winning a championship at the cup level. But what say you? What is your lasting Daryl Waldrop memory? Well, yeah, and I get it when you're saying about that 1989 season, the, the Tide car, bright orange. You think about Kyle Busch now in the M&M's car. I mean, that is something that attracts kids, right? And Daryl Waltrip, a fan favorite by that point, doing the dance in victory lane, being so happy. I can see why people would be attracted to that, especially children. So that, that's a good memory. Uh, like I said before, you know, primarily remember Daryl Waltrip as a driver in that 17 car in Western Auto. I wasn't really sure what Western Auto 
was as a kid. You know what I mean? It just made me think the colors at some point he had a chrome helmet. Uh, that, that, that's what I remember. And then learning more about the sport and more about him, uh, realizing what, what a badass driver he was. Uh, that was always cool. And what we can't forget is look for an even younger audience, David, he has been the voice of NASCAR possibly their entire lives. The Fox deal started in 2001. We're in 2019 now. That There are 18-year-olds who only know Daryl Waltrip as the voice of NASCAR, for Fox at least. And that's a whole other career he's had, which is uh, he's now retiring at the end of this season once the Fox season wraps up. So kudos to him. An honor to call him uh, a teammate and you know to have those different portions of your career. That, that's something special. You know, there are ARCA drivers who only know him as the voice <laughs> exactly. of the NASCAR. That's if you put it in, you put it in that perspective. Uh, but I've got to ask you, I know you have talked before about the 1993 season being your first as a NASCAR fan and falling in love with Rusty Wallace. But you've done a little bit of homework and you know what happened uh, in the All-Star race in 1989. I believe it's called The Assassination of Daryl Waldrip by the Coward Russell Wallace. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's the that's the going term for it. Um, Rusty Wallace, last lap uh, against Daryl Waldrip for the All-Star race win, turns him, wins, and all of a sudden, Daryl Waldrip, a driver vilified and he wore the black hat well for uh, the majority of his career becomes popular and he wins the most popular driver award for the 1989 season what do you think about that from your favorite driver he turns a villain good he, i mean it, it, it's the darth vader switch my oh. gosh that's that's some power that rusty has totally and he had an all-star level soundbite after the race that i hope he chokes on the two hundred thousand dollars which is what rusty won for for winning that race and turning waltrip i would argue that that maybe in terms of popularity and future television career i, I think rusty earned him far more than that two hundred thousand dollars so daryl should be saying thank you to my man rusty <laughs> But that's wow. just me coming coming from a Rusty fan. What do you want me to say? Um, but, yeah, no, that's a great memory. I had to write a, an essay this week about the All-Star Race and kind of its history and the high moments. And uh, that that was certainly one of them that is in there. So go look for that on my Twitter account. Uh, it was it was a good, good piece this week on Hub. Uh, and, and it makes for the perfect segue, David, because it is All-Star Week. And wouldn't you know, Daryl Waltrip was the inaugural winner of the event. And, um, and then he obviously had four years later had that memory with Rusty Wallace. I think he had the chrome helmet at one point that made its debut or maybe it was a chrome car in the all-star race. Um, when you think of the all-star race, just uh, all the ones you can think of, any particular things stand out to you? Oh, who, who are you talking to here? 1992. Come on now. Davey Allison wins, beats Kyle Petty to the start finish line. And is almost immediately knocked unconscious. I mean, if, if you're, if you're really wanting to uh, see a race where everything is on the table, a million dollars at stake, that was unbelievable. You know, Alan, I was actually on a Cub Scout camping trip oh. that night and my dad, uh, kind of snuck me away over to the car. We wanted to listen to the, uh, the, the final call and, I listened uh, to the radio describe all the chaos wow. that happened. So I, it was um, it's pretty vivid in my memory. I, I was imagining what it looked like as it was detailed to me, but that still sticks with me. I mean, just a great night, great event, crazy. I mean, Davey woke up in the hospital and had to be told he won the race. 
I, I mean, to me, I think that's that's the all timer in terms of the NASCAR All Star race. I I don't know that we've hit a uh, anything close to it. What about you? Is there is there well, anything that sticks for you? But first, just take me back for a second because there's a segment of our audience listening right now who's not going to comprehend this. But if you listened on the radio and you wanted to go back and see the highlight of what the first night race at a mile and a half was like. At what point did you finally see the highlight of that accident, of that race? Because this is 1992, not not readily available. How long did you have to wait before you were able to see what that actually looked like? Probably the week after. Uh, TNN, the old uh, the Nashville Network, ran yeah. <laughs> a uh, a weekend show called Inside Winston Cup Racing, and they would break down uh, the highlights, I think, as well as about anybody on television at the time. And to see just the... One, uh, a, a big track like that lit up, but just the, the sheer explosion of that crash, it was, I don't know. I mean, if you, you, you hear it and then you see it, you, you know what a, a day race looks like, but to see that, it was like, my God, I've, I've dropped acid or something. This is, <laughs> it, this is absolutely unbelievable. And the imagery is spellbinding. And to me, it, it's, it's still, a lasting memory to me the the all-star race at its zenith um it's that it was 1992 davy allison kyle petty dale earnhardt all in it for the win within the final few laps and that finish my goodness yeah and a similar memories for me in terms of you know we grew up racing quarter midgets and the, the all-star race was on a saturday night it was a night race there weren't a ton of them way back when remember in the 90s so that was one where after racing we could come back home after racing on saturday nights our little quarter midgets and you could make it home and there would be nascar racing on that was one of the few nights one of the few night races per season and i, I that's what i remember just being so cool that we could come home for me and at the track all day and racing would be on at night. And that was the all-star race. And I, you know, just little memories. Uh, they always had different formats. Survival of the fastest, I think was one of them where they would try the inverts and all the biggest names and the different paint schemes. Paint schemes used to be so unique. And so it was such a big deal when a new one was unveiled and they would always do them at the all-star race. Earnhardt had a bunch of them. The, uh, the Wheaties car, that silver car. The hideous, I think he had a pinkish sort of weird car, the Olympic car. Earnhardt always had a good one. Rusty had a few. Um, the T-Rex, you know, stuff like that. The all-star race used to be that big event where you, you bring your best of kind of everything in terms of a paint scheme or, you know, the cheated up job from Ray Evernham, you know, <laughs> kudos to him. Uh, that's what I remember the all-star race being, being a big event. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, look, at its height, a fantastic event. I hope that it at the very least this weekend's race uh will be memorable yeah and that's what at least we saw some of that last year you know if the ulster race has lost any of its luster it's just because it seems like it's it's just a shorter version of the 600, right? I mean, we've gone about 10 years thinking that. And then last year, we get this experimental package. We see something just different that we don't see week to week. And that was refreshing. It was fun. And I'm hoping we see that this weekend as well. And, you know, since it's the All-Star race, we're not going to go too deep into a race preview. But, David, we are going to try out something new. We're going to broach the idea of applying something that works in soccer and trying to apply it to racing. And I'm going to pull back the curtain for the audience just a little bit because you, David, sent me this idea. And instead of us hashing it out offline, uh, you're going to try to sell it to me and our audience right now uh, to see if it would work in racing. The idea is promotion and relegation. 
David, I'll let you explain it. Okay, so I, uh, I'm a fan of the uh, the footy uh, in in European soccer. Uh, each country has 20 clubs competing in its top division. Championships are awarded similar to how NASCAR championships were awarded in the pre-chase era. The club at the top of the standings at the end of the season is crowned the champion. There are no playoffs in domestic leagues, but there is an added wrinkle to incentivize competition among the clubs at the bottom of the standings. The bottom three clubs every year are relegated to a second division replaced by the second division's top three clubs. And this relationship exists as well for the third divisions, fourth divisions, all the way down to the regional divisions. Outside of soccer, the structure best suited for pro-rel is auto racing, I think. And NASCAR has a viable second division in the Xfinity series. NASCAR recently purchased the ARCA series, This is indeed a flight of fancy on my part, but it feels like it could be an interesting wrinkle to our sport. Alan, think about it. We already have the playoffs and the championship four. How does the battle to avoid relegation sound to you? It's something to cover at the end of the year. It's exciting. You're rooting for underdogs to stay up in the top division. You're rooting for lower division teams to pull it out and get promoted. What do you think? Well, I, I look, I'm a storyteller. I like things to cover. I like stories to tell, drama that to unfold. Uh, let, let's do a for example, just in case we're not quite getting it. If anyone's not quite getting, give me a for example in racing. What could happen to a team and who and who or what would replace them? Okay. So I've gone through, uh, a hypothetical after one season, uh, using the current owner standings for Cup Xfinity and ARCA. If the 2019 season ended right now, in 2020, Starcom 00, Rickware 51, Spire Motorsports 77, and Rickware 52 are all relegated from the NASCAR Cup Series to the NASCAR Xfinity Series, replaced by the Richard Childress Racing 2, the Joe Gibbs 20, the Stuart Haas 00, and the Joe Gibbs 18, promoted from Xfinity to Cup. So we would right off the bat get Tyler Reddick. We get Cole Custer finally. Christopher Bell has a home, and this eliminates the logistical nightmare for TRD and Joe Gibbs. And now they've got six cars in the Cup Series, and they get to pick a driver to sit in their former 18 Xfinity car. They can sell the ride because it's locked in for at least a year. There are a lot of possibilities that go into that. But, oh, wait, that's not all. Relegated from Xfinity to ARCA is... Is Mike Harmon in the 74, oh, Rick, no. Ware, Rick Ware 17, the Ryan Sieg operated 38, and the MBM Motorsports 13. Those teams, chronic back markers, some of them start and park in the Xfinity series, and they're probably better suited from a budget standpoint to compete in ARCA anyway. And here's where things get interesting. Promoted from ARCA to Xfinity, the Venturini Motorsports 20, the Joe Gibbs 18, that's been Riley Hurst and Ty Gibbs this year, the Chad Bryant Racing number 22, and the Venturini 15. Finally, we see Venturini Motorsports, an operation that's long been a staple of ARCA, take on some heavier competition in the Xfinity series. That is one season of Pro Rail, Allen. And I think right off the bat, the relegated teams 
have been moved to more suitable homes and the promoted teams add a lot of intrigue. What, what say you? Thoughts, criticisms? Uh, I'm trying to, obviously, you know, we're, we're playing with the rules here. This is a little bit of a fantasy in terms of all the equipment being somewhat equal, what have you. And we know this. So just play along everybody, but I'm trying to. So if, if you take the top, the best four teams out of the Xfinity series and replace them with the four worst cup teams, doesn't that hurt the Xfinity series? Does that hurt the lower level? This may be the downside when you think about it, Alan, extracting the best teams from Xfinity and ARCA, but where do you stand on the Cup Series being the best possible product it can be? Don't you want to see the best 36 to 40 teams compete on Sunday? And and on another slant, think about it from a team ownership perspective Last year, Rob Kaufman uh, went on a jag on Twitter about some of these lower-end non-chartered owners uh, should be competing in a lower series. It didn't go over well. His bedside manner is quite poor, but I don't believe he was wrong. It was a few years ago in the Daytona 500. It was uh, back when Landon Castle was driving that 40-car uh, for Joe Falk and they had the little Joe's auto, uh, sponsorship on a restart, uh, right next to the Lowe's 48 of Jimmy Johnson. And in that instance, in one of the most valuable sporting events all year on television, Lowe's just had their sponsorship by devalued considering little <laughs> Joe's paid little to nothing for the hood space on Landon Castle's car. That is a problem. If you're trying to keep companies with big marketing budgets in the sport, creating opportunities within the sport, that's something that may have to be addressed eventually. I'm sure it has been brought up in the RTA meetings. Rob Kaufman, a key member of the Race Team Alliance. But isn't the Xfinity Series an ARCA? Aren't they supposed to be either feeder series or divisions for teams without the budget to play in the cup series. Yeah. And I like the idea. Look, if you do great in the Xfinity series, that should be the way to cup, right? And this almost rewards you. You know, if you're one of the top four, you're all of a sudden in the top series in the cup because you've earned it. What I wonder is all of a sudden, just because you're there, I mean, is the top four just the top four in Xfinity, does it become the cup's bottom four next season? You know, I don't see, I don't think so. Because if you consider the, the initial four that would move up from the Xfinity series, I've talked about the drivers, but think about the teams, right? So Randall Burnett, Mike Shiplett, uh, Jason Radcliffe are all crew chiefs for those teams without looking anything up, I'm going to blindly say that they are not the bottom four crew chiefs in the cup series if they were to ever make the jump. And they're in Jason Burdett, Brian Wilson. There are a lot of good crew chiefs in the Xfinity series down the road that could be cup crew chiefs. They probably are qualified right now considering the the depth of the crew chief position at the top level. Some of these teams frankly, are competing in the wrong series. They're competing in the Xfinity series with Cup Series budgets. And same to be said for ARCA. Venturini does pretty well. They've been around a long time. It's a smart team, but they've got a pretty sizable budget compared to their competition. They might be better suited for the Xfinity series. 
they can test their metal a little bit and see how they fare. And if they don't pan out, then they're booted right back to the Arca series. That's the beauty of promotion and relegation. All right. All right. But at some point, it seems like there's only going to be a, a few owners. You're going to promote so many. You know, the good teams are going to keep promoting themselves or there's going to yeah. be three or four owners. And then you're going to be competing against your own organization for relegation and promotion. Yeah, and so kicking so yourself that, out of the league. Yeah, and that's that's one really big hurdle with this. But I just, how do you feel about that? Because you know, it was what over a decade ago, Jack Roush was on the cusp of having five, six. I mean, no, he had five. He was on the he cusp of having six yeah. or seven teams. NASCAR put the clamp down on it. I, I got to be honest. If if you're an owner and you already have four teams and you can afford a fifth and you're paying crew members a respectable salary and you can have a good driver and you can put a decent car on the track. Why can't you compete in the cup series? I know that they, and when I say they, I mean NASCAR, they wanted to encourage new owners coming into the sport. But at that time, you're discouraging other owners who may provide jobs and opportunities where we need it. What do you think this would do for driver development? Because like I said, I can see money aside, you know, right now you can be the best driver. If you don't have a big sponsor, you're not getting into a great cup ride. And if you're not in a great cup ride, I mean, look at a, a talented driver like Bubba Wallace. I don't want to say you're just withering on the vine a little bit, but you know, you, same thing about Christopher Bell. If Christopher Bell's not in one of these top Gibbs rides, you wonder, will his talent ultimately be wasted in the cup, at least early on? That's for another discussion. But what I'm getting at is, this sort of system rewards you for being good. What, what do you think this does for driver development? I think it would incentivize teams to put the best driver available in their race car. And you would have to eventually have some sort of rule that prohibits cup drivers from competing in ARCA in order to get the team promoted. But all of a sudden, the the most talented drivers in America are probably getting more of a fair crack than just the drivers who can afford to do this. If a team is strictly dependent on a paid driver to do its bidding, then that might be a good sign that they're probably in the wrong series. I think it opens up more avenues for young drivers to climb the rankings, and it gives, I think, the industry and fans, I know fans have many opinions on what NASCAR should do to, I don't know, fix the points or or change the, the different race formats. Everyone has an opinion, but I think the underlying theme of all of those opinions is everybody wants this to be a meritocracy, and sometimes it's not. And this is one thing that can at least send the sport down that path. That we can agree on. And David, I'm glad we talked about ARCA because we have a special guest here on Positive Regression for this episode. Charles Crawl, the manager of the communications for the ARCA series, is joining us. Thank you, Charles, for being on Positive Regression. Oh, Alan, I really appreciate it. It's something I've been looking forward to for uh, for about a week now. This is going to be great. Uh, Charles, not to say that the opening races of each ARCA season aren't relevant, but... <laughs> They are spaced out they on are. the calendar and uh, contain two races on the drafting tracks of Daytona and Talladega. History tells us that this upcoming summer stretch of races reveals a lot of truths about ARCA Series competitors. A good example of this for me was the 2016 season. Chase Briscoe mm-hmm. was 
certainly fast out of the gate. He won polls, but spotty performances, no wins through the first nine races. And then all of a sudden, beginning with a race at Winchester, four wins in a row, followed by six finishes of six or better in the last seven races. Charles, he went from being a driver who was interesting and a little wild to one that uh, had everyone saying, oh, yes, he is good and his talent is a real thing to which we should be paying attention. And before we dive into the summer stretch, uh, in your opinion, is there anything we already know for sure about ARCA in 2019? Well, I think the one thing we do know for sure is that the Venery Motorsports team is going to be the, the team to beat for the championship this year. I know that they're, they've got a couple of drivers who, who have been on that, uh, the roller coaster up and down week in and week out, Michael Self and Christian Eckes, but uh, that organization has just been uh, firing on all eight cylinders. Uh, even if one of those two drivers has a problem, the other one has a good day or their third driver uh, has a good day in the case of uh, Harrison Burton at Daytona. Uh, I, I really think that those, that organization will be the team to beat. Not to say that it can't be done because right now Travis Braden is leading the point standings. Travis drives for a team that is like the polar opposite of Venerini Motorsports. Uh, RFMS Racing, owned by uh, Don Fike, based in Indianapolis, Indiana, has all of three full-time employees, and Travis is one of them. Uh, he drives the car and works on the car uh, throughout the week. Uh, I've really started calling them uh, the little team that could here lately. Uh, they, they're there week in and week out. They're, they're solid performers. Uh, they, they're very consistent. Travis, uh, as many people know, won his ARCA debut at Lucas Oil Raceway in 2015 driving for a family owned team. So he can get the job done. Uh, the, the RFMS team, uh, won, I believe at Springfield back in 2015. I'd have to check my record books, uh, to, to double check my memory on that, but, uh, they're a winning team as well. And they've been, uh, very consistent and very solid in their years in the series. Uh, it's a, it's been a great match. Uh, they're having a lot of fun this year. And, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Travis uh, is able to at least make this championship fight interesting throughout the course of the summer. But, uh, really the, the team that, if I really do think Venerini Motorsports is going to get it into the consistency factor into gear here throughout this next seven or eight weeks and, and really start to put themselves in position to, uh, to have one of their two or yeah, what are their two full-time drivers uh, put themselves in position to win the championship? Agreed. And the three drivers you just mentioned, Eckes, Self and Braden rank first, second and third in ARCA peer that is now posted on Motorsports Analytics dot com so listeners should please check that out uh charles what questions if any will be answered during the upcoming stretch so the ones that i'm looking for forward to in in you know this this is what makes arca interesting to me is that you know we really only have six or seven full-time guys that are chasing the championship week in and week out but we have a lot of young drivers that come in and, and do uh, what we call the sioux chief short track challenge uh, which is a a Separate championship within the overall championship that takes place on the, on the short tracks. The tracks we define as uh, short tracks are one mile and under. Uh, so we're going to have drivers like Chandler Smith and Ty Gibbs and Corey Heim. I'm really looking forward to seeing a lot out of these guys over the course of the next, uh, eight weeks, uh, particularly Chandler Smith. Chandler came in last year, uh, and, and set an all time I can't say an all-time record because we're, we don't have access to all the stuff that would happen in like 1953, but uh, certainly a modern era record 
uh, when he sat on the pole for the first four races of his career. It's just a phenomenal achievement. And he was 15 when it happened. So that's even more impressive. He, he led more laps than anybody last year. He won two races. Uh, Chandler is a guy that I, I, and on top of that, he's a super polite kid and just a, a phenomenal guy to hang out with and be around. I'm really looking forward to seeing what he has to offer. Ty Gibbs, uh, Joe Gibbs' grandson driving for, uh, the family team, uh, is going to be a lot of fun to watch too. He finished second in his debut at Five Flags. He finished sixth at Salem and then he bounced right back and finished second at Nashville. Had a great day there. Uh, I think, Ty Gibbs is going to be a winner uh, within this next seven race stretch. Of course, not all of them. He's not going to be in all of those. But I, I think by by the time we get to that summer break, you know, the first week of July, Ty Gibbs is going to be a winner. Uh, could be this week in that Toledo. Um, Corey Heim is another one. You know, I didn't really know a whole lot about Corey Heim before he came to uh, the Arkham Menard Series. And here he is running in the top five week in and week out whenever he's getting a chance to come and race with us. And, uh, I spent some time with him at a private test at Toledo Speedway on Monday. Uh, actually, it was last Friday, I believe. Uh, and, and really had a good time hanging out with him. He's a fun kid. He's, he has adapted to these heavier race cars very, very quickly and working with Chad Bryant and Paul Andrews. A lot of people remember Paul Andrews as Alan Kowicki's championship winning crew chief back in 1992. Paul has been a, a staple here in ARCA for almost 15 years. Paul has been, a, has, has worked with a lot of really great drivers, including Chase Briscoe. So uh, Corey Heim is one that I'm going to be keeping a close eye on, and we're going to see if these guys can can get that first career win and and put themselves in position to win that short track championship. Charles, I'm glad you brought up the name Chandler Smith because positive regression listeners know in all of the racing world, Chandler Smith was number three on David's uh, prospect mm. list for a future cup career, which I found interesting because I didn't know much about the young man. And that that's a kind of a question I would uh, throw to you because our listeners, they like to hear they, you know, one of the things they want to hear about are, are cup prospects or racing prospects in general. So how... You know, how much can Arca's success be maybe a precursor for future success or a future cup career? What someone does in Arca? Well, the, the first time I ever saw Chandler run, he was at the Winchester 400 back a couple of years ago. He's 14 years old. I had never heard of him. And he was battling for the lead late in a 400 lap race on a 35 degree high banked racetrack. Uh, against some of the best super late model drivers in the country. I'm like, who the heck is this kid? Jeez. And, uh, you know, he comes in and, and like I said, he won a couple of races last year. He led almost a thousand laps last year and he only ran nine races. That is phenomenal. He actually led 199 out of 200 laps at Salem last year. Um, you know, it, it doesn't always translate. You know, we have certainly have had a lot of drivers come through and we're like, Oh man, he's going to be a lock to go on and, and you know, be a huge success in trucks and Xfinity and Cup, and it doesn't always happen, but it, it does happen. You know, I mean, Davey Allison is the guy that I always look to. You know, Davey came and ran uh, ARCA for two and a half years back in the early 80s, and, you know, he really – he that was a time when, you know, you could run almost what we what would be considered to be a short track style chassis in, in ARCA competition. Davey ran a full-blown cup car you know, heavier, you know, bigger, heavier cup car on all of these short tracks and, and was very competitive. And that was a really good sign. And, you know, I, I think we've seen guys like, uh, you know, Michael Waldrop and Ernie Irvin and, you know, so many of these guys, they might not have come in, in race for the a championship, but they dipped their toes in here. They got some experience. They, they won a race and, and that kind of 
launch them up into a, an opportunity to go do something else. And I think we only have to look, you know, look at guys like Christopher Bell. You know, when, when Christopher was making that transition from, you know, short track dirt racing into short track pavement racing, you know, he came and did some races with us in the Arkham Menard series and he won a couple of them uh, at Salem Speedway back in 2016. And that really, you know, I, I think Toyota was already pretty high on him at that point, but they saw that and they're like, yeah, we need to find something for him to do now. Uh, and then you look at guys like uh, Chris Busher, who, who parlayed a championship into uh, a quality ride at, at Roush Fenway and parlayed that into an Xfinity Series championship. And now, you know, he's running full-time in Cup. Ty Dillon is another one. You know, there's a lot of drivers that have used this experience. And, you know, I heard Joey Logano talking about this in the media center at uh, Talladega when we were there. You know, you can go and get a lot of uh, good full-bodied stock car experience in the NASCAR K&N Pro Series, and that's a great, wonderful series. But what the K&N Series doesn't do is it doesn't race on those bigger racetracks. So you come to, even if it's a part-time schedule on super speedways only, you know, coming to ARCA is going to give you a chance to get that experience at Kansas and Michigan and Chicago and Pocono and Daytona and Talladega. I mean, you know, I, I it's it's almost frustrating to me when you hear, you know, the, the complaints about some of the races that we have in the past at Daytona and Talladega, because yeah, these are drivers who don't have a lot of drafting experience and sometimes mistakes are going to be made. And sometimes that's going to lead to accidents on the racetrack. So what would we rather have? Would we rather have that mistake being made at the ARCA level or would you rather that be made at the Xfinity or cup level? Well, I personally would rather have it made at our level. So when they do get up to, uh, a truck ride or an Xfinity ride or a cup ride, you know, they have that experience and they know what to expect in the draft. So that's exactly what uh, the ARCA series is for is to come and get that experience. It's like, you know, expecting, you know, single A or double A pitching uh, to be able to go out and, and strike out, you know, major league hitters. It's, it's sometimes laughable. And yeah, I mean, there's a reason why they're in a developmental series. They want to develop their talent, but I think that we do have a couple of guys right now that are going to be able to uh, carry their opportunities. I think Christian Eckes and Chandler Smith are two guys that I really do think are going to take advantage of the opportunities that they have in front of them. I know they both have uh, some opportunities with Kyle Busch motorsports uh, this season and, and Christian already, started on the pole at Daytona in the truck race. And I think he had a really good solid run going before he got caught up in someone else's mess. So uh, I think there are a couple of guys that have a really good shot at carrying that on to a uh, career racing on Sundays. Some great examples there. And just being in the truck series, you know, I can tell you, obviously, Sheldon Creed, uh, right. Todd Gilliland, and uh, Harrison Burton, all using ARCA, whether a test session or, you know, just for time to get on those big tracks, like you said, and using it in various levels uh, and different levels of success, but ultimately using it to gain more experience. So those are great examples you had. Uh, you and, mentioned- and Alan, I have to, and I'm just, sorry to interrupt, but I, Todd Gillen is a great example. Todd is, yeah. a, is a guy that has, has really been one of the fastest drivers in that truck um, since he's, since he started. And he has just, he's had a confidence problem and he's had a luck problem. You know, he's, he's been involved in some things that were his doing. He's had been involved in some things that weren't his doing coming to Talladega and winning, uh, in the Arkham and Art series a couple of weeks ago, I think has really going to help his confidence issues. And I think we're going to see Todd Gilliland come out and start winning some truck races here before too long. 
that's the future. Uh, you mentioned the long history that ARCA has, but looking even further into the future, ARCA is about to go through some big changes. What, where do you see the series going? What, what lies ahead, uh, for the ARCA series and just what it means to the, the ladder system in, in racing? So we're not exactly sure exactly how that's going to look just yet. We're still, uh, I know my boss, Ron Drager is, uh, talking on the phone two, three, four, ten times a day uh, with the folks down in Daytona Beach and in Charlotte trying to figure out exactly what 2020 is going to look like. Um, we have already let it be known that at some point in time that there will be a merging of the K&M Pro Series and the Arca Menard Series in what we are calling the Stock Car Challenge. It's going to be uh, the races on tracks one mile and under. Uh, we don't know where they're going to be. We don't know you know, we, we think there's going to be probably around 10 of them. Uh, we don't know exactly which events those are going to be. And we don't know exactly the, the, the rules platform just yet. All of the, you know, there's 99% of it's all probably ironed out, but it's just those details that they're trying to work out. Um, I think this is going to be great. I think blending these two series together is going to give, uh, some of these teams an opportunity to come race on a little bit bigger stage and in front of some more people. Uh, at some of these traditional ARCA events. I think some of the traditional K&N events that may get uh, elevated into that stock car challenge are going to become a little more high profile as well. Um, it's going to help with the car count issue. I mean, we we are in a, a very challenging time, uh, to say the least, in all of short track racing. I think there are very few uh, pavement short track racing series uh, or local racetracks uh, that aren't struggling with car count right now. So I think that's going to help that issue. Hopefully it helps on both ends of the equation. And I, I as far as the ladder system, I think what it really does is it, is it formalizes what that ladder system should be. You know, there, sometimes uh, in the past we've seen teams kind of waver, you know, should we go K&N racing? Should we go ARCA racing? Should we just skip it and go truck racing? You know, I think it's going to finally – formalize what that ladder system will be. And and I think that that is a very good starting point. Now, I think one of the other things that uh, this is just Charlie speaking, I'm not speaking for ARCA, I'm not speaking for NASCAR. I think what I would like to see is uh, a formalization of the age rules, uh, just so, you know, a, a young driver has to come and make a stop in ARCA before making that jump into a truck or an Xfinity car or or eventually a cup car. Uh, but, you know, I think if we could get, and, and I don't know what the chances of that happening are. I'm, I'm certainly far, far removed from those discussions, but I think it makes a lot of sense where, you know, uh, if you're a 15 or 16 year old, you come and run in the Arkham and Art series. Once, once you graduate from there, you, you make the leap into a truck, then you make the leap into an Xfinity car and then a, a cup car. And uh, that's in, in the perfect world. That's how it would be. So, um, like I said, I, I don't have anything to do with those discussions. I'm just speaking for myself right there as as a race fan. Um, but I, I think the, the great thing about it is, is we're probably a couple of months away from finding out exactly what 2020 is going to look like. So I'm, I'm uh, just like the rest of the world. I'm just kind of waiting to see how this is going to play out. Charles, shifting gears from the Arca Menard series, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. This is episode 17 of Positive Regression. It's our Daryl Waldrip edition. And before he made the number 17 famous, he drove the number 88. He did. At Dieguard Racing. Your uncle, Bill Gardner, was the co-owner and eventually the sole owner of Dieguard Racing. Tell me, do you have any good Daryl Waldrip stories or just one story that you are willing to divulge? Well, I I was a young guy back then. Um you know, so I, I wasn't really a, around the, the race team each and every day, but I have to tell you, 
I was the biggest Daryl Walter fan in the world when, when I was a kid until uh, 1981 <laughs> when he left. Um, I can remember um, just watching him uh, wear us out when he, when he went over into that Mountain Dew car. But, you know, the, the great thing about the racing in the seventies is it was, it was a lot different back then. I think one of the really cool stories that, that I always like is, is when, uh, I believe this was 1979. Daryl had jumped out and led like 184 laps at Martinsville and was just wearing the field out and uh, blew the engine. And in today's NASCAR, you are done. You blow the engine in the race and you are done. Uh, he pulled in and they threw the car up on jack stands. They got an engine hoist out and swapped it out 11 minutes and 36 seconds. And uh, I, I don't think he even lost 25 laps, you know, and he, and they, Put it back in, and and, and I, if I had the, I, I can probably look this up really quick and see exactly where he finished. But um, he he still finished in the top half of the field with a blown engine, you know, early in the race. It's just amazing, <laughs> and you know, I, I think having Daryl uh, sort of help, you know, give Diegard. It's because they won. You know, Diegard had won a race before Daryl came to drive for him, so you know, he gave the family race team, so to speak, a lot of credibility, a lot of, you know, he, he really elevated what they were able to do. And, and of course, um, the rivalry between Bobby Allison and, and, and Daryl Waltrip in the 82, 83 season is probably my favorite, uh, two years, even though I was still only nine and 10 years old, um, still my favorite rivalry in all of motorsports. I mean, those are some really, really intense times. And, you know, Daryl, it's funny because I, I see Daryl a couple times a year when I'm, I work up at the track uh, PA booth at Michigan and I bump into Daryl at the, the June race and I always go over to him and say hello and, you know, he asks how my uncle and my aunt are doing. And, um, he is, he, he went from being my favorite to, to being that guy that I love to hate to, you know, after he, he left Junior Johnson and went to drive for, uh, to Hendrick Motorsports, I, I jumped on the, the Daryl Walter bandwagon yet again. And, um, it's great to see him. I, I really am just, I'm just proud of the fact that he he drove for for our family for uh, as long as he did. And um, by the way, he finished 11th in that race, uh, only 29 laps down. Uh, not bad for swapping out an engine <laughs> after 184 laps. But um, you know, I'm just I'm proud of the fact that he he helped elevate our our family race team. I know when when he left, you know, Daryl was the first driver who ever signed a contract to drive for a race team. My uncle said, "Hey, if you're in driver, you got to sign a contract." And, you know, that contract was for way longer than 1981 when Daryl left. So he had to buy his way out of it. And there was a, a lot of, you know, sore feelings when, when that happened. And, you know, I think eventually when, you know, Daryl went on to have his success and Dygard went on to have their success. And, you know, I think years and years later, they, they both kind of realized, you know, hey, that, that really was the right thing to do. And, and Daryl, I think, it's, has even said, you know, that was the best money I ever spent because, you know, it put me on a path to become a three-time champion, which, you know, really the way that that relationship at Diegard was going at the time probably wasn't going to happen. I don't think they were going to team up to win any championships anytime soon, but, you know, it all worked out. And, and I, I do recall that he and my uncle, uh, despite the acrimony at the end of their tenure together, I believe that they had uh, spent some time together when, when Daryl was being inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And, it was a very cordial, very friendly meeting, and that, that kind of warms my heart. It was great to see. Well, that is the perfect bookend to the Daryl Waltrip edition of Positive Regression. So we appreciate that. Charles Crawl from the ARCA series, thank you for joining us here. It's been, it's been awesome. No, thanks for having me, guys. Love to do it anytime. 
We are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. We have all your favorite devices covered. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or a review. That does help this podcast gain visibility. Your help in spreading the word is appreciated. If you have any questions for us or feedback, we want to answer them here on this podcast. Just reach out to us on Twitter at PosregPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, what are you working on? On the latest edition of the speed rankings for motorsports analytics, I compared Kevin Harvick's record when he has the fastest car in a given race to the series-wide average. Harvick, it should be noted, recorded the fastest central speed at Dover and Kansas and came out the other end without a trophy. Also, I've been Alex Bowman's harshest critic (laughs) in recent seasons, so I'm happy to address his surge of second-place finishes That article will hopefully be posted before Friday on motorsportsanalytics.com. Speaking of Alex Bowman, I talked to him this week for Race Hub at Team Hendrick, so you will see that, especially if you are a subscriber and listening to this on Thursday morning. Watch Race Hub tonight on Thursday. You will see our interview after finishing second three times in a row. He certainly had a lot of mixed feelings on uh, that accomplishment, and uh, I'll be on Pit Road again on uh, Friday. The Truck Series are back. Two awesome races we just had. Dover was great. Kansas had a bunch of storylines and great racing. I expect the same in Charlotte, so tune into FS1 for that, and it's All-Star Weekend. Keep it on FS1 all day Saturday and watch the All-Star Race, David. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for joining us here on Positive Progression. Stay positive, everybody. See you next week. Being a baseball fanatic like me can be stressful. It's not all sports points and touchdowns. So Progressive is going to help you take your mind off your team for a moment. Instead of thinking about how they missed that goal point score, think about the Name Your Price tool from Progressive letting you choose coverage options based on your budget. Unlike your team that missed the end zone net area. Well, anyway, hope this distraction about Progressive's Name Your Price tool was helpful. It sure kept me from thinking about all those penalty balls. Yay, sports! Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.